Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hello, folks. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from the earlier years of the podcast. This week, we are celebrating Father's Day with a little compilation here of four of our favorite classic Risk stories about fathers. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Leona Godin, the author of Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness. But before that, we're going to hear from Colleen Hinesley, who's currently developing her solo show, That's Not How It Happened, for TV. But before that, we're going to hear from Chris Garcia, who is a co-host with Megan Gailey and Kurt Braunhaller on a podcast called I Love My Kid, but, and his other podcast, Scattered, was named one of Time Magazine's podcasts of the year. So without further ado, here now is Chris Garcia with a story we call Still Very Much in Love. Excited to be here. I uh, just recently became a father. Yeah. Uh, by which I mean my father's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And uh, I don't feel uncomfortable. He is, uh, he's doing well. He has no insight to his condition. He's taken care of. Uh, he's comfortable. Uh, life handed him a lemon, and he's using it as a remote control right now. <laughs> He is, he's in the, he's like, he's on airplane mode. He is like, he's having a good time. He's taking off his shirt in public. He's drinking a whole bunch of Diet Pepsi and recycling it right into a sock drawer. And I am not ready to, I am the same age my father was uh, when I was born. He's 70, I'm 35 years old. I am not prepared to be a father. I still smoke pot out of apples. Okay, I am not ready. I cut my hand open the other day with a pair of scissors because I was trying to cut open an avocado to make drunk guacamole at five in the morning. I didn't have a Band-Aid, so I used a ribbon from a Christmas present and I put it on my hand and I sat on it because I don't have insurance, so if I get hurt, I have to die. I am not ready for this. But I love my father and he's a great guy and I'm gonna do this. And so it's taken everything me and my mom and my sister have to care for my awesome dad. And it's brought us together in such a special way because, you know, he's, he really has no insight to it, but it really affects my mom and my, my sister and I, and it's brought us together so sweetly, and we communicate on a level that we've never talked before. We process things together. We share. We listen. We're each other's rocks. And so recently my mother was like, uh, so uh, your father and I are getting uh, intimate. And I was like, uh, no gracias. Uh, <laughs> nope. 
Uh, she's like, I can't tell people at church about this asshole. Just fucking listen. <laughs> you know? And I was like, okay. And she's like, we're getting very steamy. And I was like, okay, continue. But not the fucking adjectives, okay? Just lay it on me. Uh, that was a bad word choice, too. Uh, <laughs> but I was like, just let me know. Well, okay. And she's like, so your dad and I, uh, he gets very aggressive with me. Uh, he picks me up. He smushes me up against the wall and just start, he's like chest to chest and pressing up against me and stops and goes, I don't know if I can do this. I have a wife and two kids. My father tried to cheat on my mom with my mom. And he stopped himself. His guilt is stronger than dementia. And my father has a type. Four foot eight Cuban ladies is my dad's jam. And so we're working together and we're determined to continue as a family and it's beautiful and it's hard and scary. So we like take my dad out and we try to pretend, we don't pretend something's wrong, we're just trying to continue our lives with him. And sometimes he's with it and sometimes he's not. And so we take him to Walmart one day and he walks right up to an African-American gentleman that works there and he says, uh, hey, black guy, where's the cookies? <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit, my dad's back, everybody. <laughs> this medication is working. The dude still got it. That's just my pops, Jay every day right there. That's how the man works. And so, that's what we're living with. And, and uh, I guess my story starts now is that we're lucky enough, we, we found a home that we could afford, which is very difficult in this country, and we found something for low-income folks, and we're lucky to have them there. And one day, he had a bad reaction to his medication, and he pulled down a curtain uh, in one move and punched a woman in the face. I know, hilarious. <laughs> and so my dad had to be rushed to an ER room, and then he was taken to a psych ward, in Long Beach, California, with uh, people that were there for uh, various reasons. There was a, a guy about my age that wore an open robe, and he was naked, and screamed at the Canadian embassy for a very long time <laughs> on a phone that was not in his hand. Uh, but he was pretending like he was like that. Uh, there's, uh, it was the day the Discovery was landing in Los Angeles. It was a very big day. In LA, there was huge buzz about it. It was gonna fly over Long Beach. It was, it was very exciting, because my dad, uh, he worked in the aerospace industry, and he immigrated from Cuba. He had a very tough life in Cuba. He was uh, molested as a child, abandoned by his parents. Uh, right around the time he was 20 years old, he was anti-communist, and so he was taken out of uh, out of college and forced to work in a sugarcane plantation where he was in, uh, he was uh, in solitary confinement for two years, taken away from his wife and his first daughter. And he was tortured and he was given electroshock therapy, which uh, doctors think it's maybe part of the reason he has dementia. My uh, father left Cuba for Spain with my mom got an education, came, most Cubans go to Miami, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go to Miami, wear some weird jewelry, and wear a lot of cologne, and my dad was like, fuck that. I wanna work in the aerospace business. So he moved to Los Angeles, and so he worked uh, for like JPL and Rockwell and stuff like that as a machinist, uh, which is an amazing thing. So we're sitting there, and the discovery is a huge thing to my father. And as soon as he got there, he was restrained. He was strapped to a bed. And he would break through the, the restraints to the point that he bled. It's very tough to see. I hope you never have to see your parents go through. And so, uh, they give my dad some, uh, like, Seroquel or something that just really veges him out. He goes zombie face, stone-eyed, and just is completely blank. Uh, and he's, we're sitting in this, com this like uh, community room or whatever, 
and uh, there's a uh, flat screen showing the discovery. And my father is not, it, this is nothing to him. And to, it's such a crazy moment. Well, the discovery starts to fly by Long Beach. And so the people working there, nurses and doctors and patients, go, up to, the, go to the window or go upstairs and watch as the discovery is flying by. And my dad's just like, and, uh, there's the, uh, I, and everyone left. I was stuck in this room with my dad and other psychotic people. And I'm just like sitting there watching this thing. There's a very big man, a large man watching it. He sees the discovery uh, on the TV. The discovery's on top of an airplane. And he just looks at it and he goes, ha, ha, ha. It looks like, it looks like it's wearing a little backpack. We're there with my dad. We're hanging out all day. I'm thinking about how crazy this is. This is the whole reason my father came here, to work on the space program. He had this dream. And uh, we're sitting there, and my father, out of the blue, snaps out of it. And it's beautiful. And he sees my mom, and he smiles so big. It's like... Like a thousand corgi videos, adorable. <laughs> it's like every kitten picture you've ever seen on the internet, times a billion. He brightens up. He looks at my mom, and he goes, uh, Matika, that's my mom's name. He's like, Matika. He takes her hand, and it's like shaking, and he kisses her on the hand. And he leans in, and he kisses her on the mouth. My mom's crying. It's so beautiful. My sister's crying. Nurse crying. I have, the, I don't know, I have this, I have this like Cuban like machismo thing all of a sudden that I clearly don't have. <laughs> it washes over me in that moment. I'm like, I can't cry. <laughs> cool kiss, yeah. Uh, and so I'm trying to be tough. I was like, my dad would hate it if I cried right now. He, 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 I, I'm the sensitive kid. And he didn't really like it, that I would cry all the time, so I'm not going to cry, I'm going to be tough. And I'm just going to like, I lean in, and I put my arm around my dad and just like, give him like a bro pat, <laughs> just on his back. I just go like that. And he looks over to me, and he goes, uh, who's this Mexican f My dad still got it, everybody. Uh, before I get out of here, this is an awesome show, by the way. This is great that we get to do this. I uh, want to play you something before I get out of here. It's a voicemail from my mother that she recently sent me. And uh, let's see. Uh, this message in Spanish, my, me and my parents speak Spanish together. I didn't think it was appropriate to like do act outs during my set. Uh, being on the, and then my mom was like, Cuchi, cuchi, my dad's like, why are you talking about my man? That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, your puppy was very horny and he pushed me as a little one. I did not feel like that was appropriate. So I just spoke in my voice. I didn't want to bring that into this. So my mom goes. Hi, Papa. She calls me Papa. She's like, hey, Papa, I'm calling to tell you something funny. Dad's very well. He's doing well. I had to leave because Dad wanted to do a quickie. My mom's awesome. We're getting through this. It's okay. My dad still has a boner for my fucking mom. That's so amazing. His brain's dead and his dick is still hard. See you later, alligator. She goes, see you later, alligator. <laughs> like she has a fucking catchphrase or some shit. 
It's just his brain, but he's still very much in love with me. I had to get out of there because he, he wanted to give me the cannon. Call back to see you later, alligator. It's so you. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good night. My dad and I were sitting together in the waiting room of the clinic where he was receiving radiation treatments for his lung cancer. And he was really quiet that day, which was unusual for him because he was typically a very gregarious guy. But that day he was really quiet and seemed very sad. So I, of course, was doing my best to try to distract him and making small talk and teasing him and trying to get him to laugh. And he was having none of it. He he wouldn't even look at me, let alone smile. So we just sat quietly for a few minutes. And finally, he started to move around a little bit. And he, he made this gesture with his hand toward his throat. And he said, I can't sing anymore. And that was the only time I ever saw him cry. It's understandable that he'd be upset. He was so sick and he was weak, but really because he had always had a beautiful, booming baritone voice, especially his singing voice. And at that point, his voice had become a ghost of what it once was. It was thinner and bonier, even than his body was becoming. And I had the feeling that he knew before then that his singing voice was disappearing. But I think it was the first time he ever said it out loud. And I know that I was the only one that he ever confided that to. My dad was a classically trained opera singer. He loved Pavarotti and all the opera singers, but he also loved popular music like Frank Sinatra. He loved, you know, whatever was on the radio, kind of in the 60s, the Rat Pack. He just loved it all. And he was always singing in the house. He had a huge record collection. And all of us were always singing, too. We had this big three-story house. We were all just yelling up and down the stairs and singing. And my dad would say, hey, listen to this. And he'd put a record on the hi-fi. And there would be some new song that he'd want us to listen to. When the world cold I will feel a glow just thinking so the house was always alive with music all the time and my dad he was the guy who could work a tune into any situation he was known for just busting into song in the middle of a conversation or if you had a name he could musicalize, he would do it. So if I brought a girlfriend home from school and she'd say, hi, I'm Katie, he would say, oh, K-K-K-Katie, beautiful Katie, you're the only girl that I adore. He was just so charming. And he loved an audience. My parents owned this great big Irish pub in the suburbs of Philadelphia, which was back in the days when the Irish bar was 
not America's favorite franchise. It was really a unique thing. The name of the place was Fiddler's Green, but we all just called it The Place. Well, in the merry month of May, now from me home, I started, left the girls and two were nearly broken hearted, saluted father dear, kissed me darling mother, drank a pint of beer, me grief and tears, this mother enough to reap the corn and leaf, for I was born, got a stout McLeod, the banished ghost and goblets, a brand new pair of brogues to rock, the love of the bogs and frighten all the dogs on the rocky roads, a double of one to three for five, hunt a hare and turn a gun. Every Friday and Saturday night at the place, he would put on a show. He would have a piano player and a drummer, sometimes a singing partner, and people would come from all over to hear him sing. They really would. And he had this knack for remembering people, especially their names. And if you didn't have an Irish last name, he would have to give you one. So he'd be on the stage and a guy would walk in and he would yell out from the stage, Dave O'Goldstein, thank God you're here. We've been waiting for you. Have a seat. Have a seat. And he just included everybody in the show. Everybody felt like they were part of the family. And because it was, of course, an Irish place, the repertoire was mostly Irish music. And there were a million songs. There were fighting songs and drinking songs. There were love songs. There were songs about the famine and the troubles. There were these gut-wrenching sad songs about wrongful imprisonment and long separations from your family. But there were also these songs about petty crimes, like, Who threw the overalls in Mrs. Murphy's chowder? (laughs) And these were the songs the crowd loved, the sing-along songs. But my dad, his favorite, his passion, was Broadway show tunes. They couldn't pick a better time to start in life. It ain't too early and it ain't too late. Starting as a farmer with a brand new wife. Soon be living in a brand new state. Brand new state. Gonna treat you great. He loved them all. He loved everything from Cats to Camelot, The King and I, Carousel, you name it. He loved it. He would always try to work as many as he could into his show. And in fact, the big crowd pleaser was usually the Oklahoma medley, which you can imagine. You're doing fine, Oklahoma. Oklahoma, O-K-L-A-H-O-M-A. Oklahoma! Yeah! Killed every time, seriously. The crowd just loved it. He would also do a patriotic medley, which would have songs like God Bless America and Yankee Doodle Dandy. And he would just get the crowd on their feet and we'd be... Marching around the place, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The whole bar on their feet, parading around the bar. He just had everybody, like I said, everybody was part of the show. As for me, I was the only one of his six kids that he could ever coax up onto the stage with him to sing. And when I was little, all he needed to say was... Here's our Colleen. And I would come running eagerly up to the stage just to sing a few bars with whatever he was singing. But usually he would just start singing. The sun will come out. And I would run up and just sing tomorrow because that was my favorite song from my favorite musical, Annie. And uh, it was very cute and we loved to sing together. And I was so little, I was maybe five or six. And as I got a little older, I started to get shyer. Partially because I started to recognize that my dad had this beautiful singing voice and maybe I wasn't such a great singer because I was eight. But also, I kind of started to realize at that time that I wasn't the cutest kid on the block. I was kind of unfortunate looking as a kid and I started to be really shy about that. So if my dad realized that I was being resistant to coming up on the stage, he would just look at me and say, sing out, kid, sing out. And I would. I would get up and I would sing out because that's what he told me to do and that's what we did. So over the years, we continued to sing together and when I was finally old enough to legally work in the bar, we really started to sing all the time together and we started to settle into what would become our signature duet. (laughs) And it was called, You're Never Fully Dressed Without a Smile. And it was also from the musical Annie. Every Friday and Saturday night, we would sing this song. He would start. 
Hey, hobo man, hey, dapper Dan, then I join in. You've both got your styles together, but brother, you're never fully dressed without a smile. Every weekend, we sang the song. We must have done that song together more than 200 times in my life, and we knew it all down pat. We knew every point where we could riff and wink at each other and smile and do our little patter, and uh, it was really great. The audience loved it. They asked for it every week. And I had mixed feelings about it, though. I remember having mixed feelings because, on the one hand, I idolized my dad. I loved singing with him. And I also loved the idea that he wanted to sing with me. And that he was proud of me and he liked to sing with me. But on the other hand, by the time I got into my 20s, I was really into rock and roll and pop music. I really was not into Broadway tunes. And so secretly, I thought the song was a little lame. And I had that feeling going in. And the other thing is that I was a waitress and a bartender at the place. By the time my dad would get around to saying, here's our Colleen, and we could do our duet, the dinner rush would be over. I would be sweating and disheveled, wearing a dirty apron, reeking of cigarette smoke and French dressing and old dollar bills. And I'd have to go up there and sing with my six foot tall, dapper dad and his sport coat with his baritone. And I just felt a little out of place. And sometimes I was embarrassed, but I always did it. I always sang out because that's what we did. Eventually, I left Philadelphia and I moved to New York. New York, New York, a hell of a town. The Bronx is up and the battery's down, which my father would sing to me every time I saw him. I continued to sing on my own, um, not professionally, but for myself. And although I was very happy, sort of secretly happy, that the opportunities to sing our signature song became fewer and farther between. But now I can't remember the last time we sang together. I can't remember the time when we sang you're never fully dressed without a smile. I mean, obviously it was before my parents retired and sold the bar. It was before the place became a sports bar called Screwballs, before my dad's cancer. And thinking about that day in the waiting room, I had been thinking that my father was feeling so terrible because the treatments that were meant to make him better were actually making him feel worse. But really, the absolute worst thing for him about being so sick was losing his voice, was not being able to sing. Our whole family at that time, we were all still optimistic. We really believed that he was going to beat the cancer, that he was going to get past this. And we were encouraging him to keep up with his treatments. We were taking him to the clinic. We were trying to keep his spirits up. But that day, to me, he said, it's gone and it's never coming back. And I wish that I could say that that day, in that moment, that I sang to him, that I sang for him, but I couldn't. All I could do was sit there and hold his hand silently. And in the weeks to come, which would be his last weeks, I still couldn't sing. Right when my father was losing his voice, at a time when I could have and probably should have filled the house with music and singing, I lost my voice too. In fact, we all did. Music left our home entirely. We didn't have a wake. We didn't sing at the funeral. Uh, there wasn't a band at the lunch after the funeral, which for an Irish funeral is completely unheard of. And even for a Hinesley party, not having a band, not having even someone burst into a round of On the Way to Cape May or Take Me Back to Manny Yunk or Danny Boy, we just lost it all. After my father passed away, in those next months, that next year, 
all I can remember is quiet. I can't remember a moment where I felt happy, where I felt music, where I felt like singing. It was completely silent in my memory, almost like someone hit the mute button on my life. And it took me a long time to get back to it. It took me probably more than a year before I was able to even sing in the shower or in the car. But finally I did. I started to sing again, little by little, with friends, finally in a band. And that felt amazing. That felt like I had found music again, like I had found my voice. And I was so happy and so relieved that that had happened. And now it's been about four years since dad passed away and the musical Annie came back to Broadway. I went to see it recently with some friends and honestly, I was dreading it because I had this fear that hearing that music again, hearing our song would bring back all of that regret and that guilt that I'd been carrying about sending my father so silently into his death. I was afraid that it would reach up and steal my voice again. But sitting in the theater from the time that the opening strains of the music started all the way through to when those orphans were singing, you're never fully dressed without an S-M-I-L-E. I just felt nothing but joy and happiness. And it was as if finally I understood that even though I didn't get to send my father off, I didn't get to sing him out of this life, he would be so thrilled and proud to know that I continue to sing through my own, that I continue to sing out. And I am, I am singing out. I was 19 years old and I was planning a three and a half month long backpacking tour with my best friend Indigo when my relatives began to ask if I was going to get in touch with my father in, in Europe and I, and I was like, probably not. Um, <laughs> Indigo and I had big plans of like hanging out in seedy youth hostels and chasing after European hotties. <laughs> And you're probably like, wait, is she really blind? Like, what does she mean by hot exactly? Well, two things. Uh, one, we have our ways. And two, back then when I was 19, I was just a little bit blind. Like, just a, just a little bit blind. So I, I didn't use a cane or a dog or anything, and, and um, I could walk around just fine. And, and um, I couldn't see details very well, like people's faces, so that's where Indigo would come in handy and she'd be like, he's cute. He's looking at you. Go get him. And I would. So, so these are the kinds of things, these are the kinds of things I was thinking about, not getting in touch with my estranged father. You see, I didn't know my dad growing up. Um, my parents got divorced when I was three and my dad was in the military. And so he lived all over the world in Turkey and Italy and Thailand and now Germany. And uh, I grew up in San Francisco with my mother. And uh, I hadn't even seen him since I was like 10 years old. And he had returned to San Francisco for his mother's funeral. And, uh, and he was with his new wife. And um, it was around that time, around the age of 10, that I was diagnosed with my uh, degenerative eye disease that very, very, very slowly, like I cannot say very enough times to tell you how slow uh, the degeneration was uh, while I moved from being a visually impaired person to being blind. So I hadn't even 
corresponded with my father since maybe five years when I was 15 and I was kind of sick of these cards that I would get for my birthday and for Christmas that had a check for 25 bucks and they said, love daddy. And uh, I wrote him and I said, you know, I don't know who this daddy character is. Um, if you want to have a real relationship with me, wonderful. But if not, then just don't bother. And he didn't. So yeah, I was not real keen on getting another rejection from him. So we, we, uh, my best friend calls me on the night before we're to set out on our three and a half month long backpacking tour of Europe and she says, I hurt my knee. And it would turn out that she'd actually torn a ligament in her knee. But we did not know that, so we blithely take off for Europe and we arrive in Frankfurt in the early morning hours and there's like porn stores in the airport and, and I'm wheeling in to go around in a wheelchair that the airport gave to us because they saw that we were struggling. And I begin to think that maybe hotties and hostels are a little out of our league. And I decided to take my mom's very sound advice before I left and she said, you might want to use your military dependent card and go to the Wiesbaden Military Hotel. And so we do this, we get to our room and Indigo promptly passes out from pain and pain pills. And so I decided to try to go out on the town by myself. And this is decades before my trusty talking iPhone gave me access to like GPS and maps and, and endless you know, uh, travel guides and what have you. So I just go out and I get lost. And uh, it starts its brutal German raining on top of me. And I, and I somehow managed to flag a taxi and I get back to the hotel. I'm defeated and I start to think about calling my dad. And it's out of boredom and frustration, but I also start to think that maybe my dad and his nurse practitioner wife might be able to help us get our trip started. And uh, back then, if I wrote in like really big Sharpie letters, I could, I could read using my peripheral vision. So I had written my, my dad's number and I, and I held it in a trembling hand and I smoked furiously with my other hand and I, and I was like, is he gonna fucking reject me again? Is he gonna hang up on me? Like, wh I don't know, but I had to try. So I dial, I dial the number and I hear that, that foreign ringing and then, and then my dad's voice picks up. And my dad has a very particular voice. Like he sounds exactly like, like Nick Charles of The Thin Man, you know, that novel by Dashiell Hammett where there's just like Nick and Nora and they're these glamorous people who just laze around their Manhattan apartment drinking cocktails and solving murders all day long. And maybe you're wondering, like, how does your dad sound like a character in a novel? And I tell you what, he sounds exactly like the audible version of the narrator who reads The Thin Man. And I'm not even getting paid by Audible to say that. <laughs> and, the, and, and his attitude is right, right along these lines, too. Like, my favorite line in this book where it was like, um, you know, Nick is telling the story of the crime so far. And he's like, oh, I'm parched. Bring me a drink, which is kind of how I feel like right now. But, um, and Nora says, well, shouldn't you have breakfast first? And, and Nick is like, oh, it's too early for breakfast. So that's my dad, like sort of blasé and decadent, right? So I didn't know that at the time, but all I heard was this, this voice. And he said, hello. And I said, hi, dad, this is your daughter. Um, I'm in the neighborhood and thought I'd give you a call. And he said, no, hi kiddo, what neighborhood? I said, I'm in your neighborhood, I'm in Wiesbaden. He said, oh, do you have plans for dinner this evening? And I look over at Indigo and I'm like, no, I'm pretty free. <laughs> and he said, okay, I'll pick you up at six. So it would turn out that my dad and his nurse practitioner wife would indeed get us a brace for Indigo and we'd be able to get back on our, on our trek after just a little bit of a delay. But this night, it was all about me and my dad. On our, on our first father-daughter date, we, we had this beautiful dinner and we talked and we had wine and then we had appetizers and then we both pulled out our packs of cigarettes and we got to smoke at the table. The good old days, I'm just kidding, I'm totally kidding. And it was around that time, like maybe just before, just after the entree, when my dad said to me, how did you get to be so much like your old man? And I was like, I don't know, I guess a taste for the good life is in the genes. 
And then after dinner, we walked through the misty streets of Wiesbaden holding hands, and my dad, perhaps ironically, has never been much of a thin man, so his hand was a little bit budgy, but strong and gentle, and we got to the hotel, and he said, I'm glad you called, kiddo. I love you. And I said, I love you too, Dad. And I will never forget the exuberant bounding I did uh, down this enormous chandelier drooping hallway that was made for international delegations, but was at that moment empty except for me and my joy of finding a dad. A couple of years later, my dad and his wife moved back to the States, and first they moved to a um, California gold country where my dad becomes mayor of uh, the bustling metropolis of Amador City. Population 52. <laughs> and then they finally make their way back to his hometown of San Francisco. And during all this time, I moved from San Francisco to New Orleans, to New York, where I lived for many years, and then just recently here to Denver. Yay! <laughs> and during that time, we, we kept in touch. We would have our weekly cocktail hour, and we would talk about politics and all the musicals he'd seen, because my dad loves his musicals. That is one gene I did not inherit from him. <laughs> and during all this time, I moved from being a visually impaired person to being a blind person, and my dad moved from being an able-bodied person to being a disabled person. A degenerative neuropathy had moved from the bottoms of his feet to his knees and from his fingertips to his elbows, leaving his hands like mittens, his feet like blocks, when he stopped being able to feel the pedals of his Jeep, he had to stop driving. And he and his wife had been accustomed to doing these marvelous vacations. They had been all over the world, over a hundred countries, all seven continents. And now his wife started doing these without him. And he was left at home more and more. And he would say to me all the time, he would say, I'm not going to stop her. I, if I could still be doing the same thing, I'd still be doing it. You know, my dad was such a lover of the good life that he would never stop anybody that he loved from enjoying it. He began to get these terrible wounds in his feet uh, that wouldn't heal because he couldn't feel at the bottoms of his feet. He couldn't feel anything. And then he got these infections and the infections became life-threatening. And then a couple of years ago, he called and he said, they want to chop off my feet. I was like, Dad, that is really terrible, but it sounds like a kind of an obvious choice. It sounds like it's either your feet or your life. And he said, I know, I know, but how am I going to do the things that I still can do, like take a shower? And I was like, Dad, they're doing amazing things with prosthetics these days. You know, people are climbing mountains and shit. But he couldn't bring himself to that level of disability. It, it scared him. He would say to me, shit, I, I don't even know why I'm complaining to you. You're blind. And I was like, but I'm okay. <laughs> I've been going, I've been moving into this disability thing my whole life. And, and I'm okay with it. I'm actually kind of proud to be part of a marginalized group on the rise. <laughs> disability is the new diversity. I'll have you know. But it, it wasn't for my dad, and uh, he died on August 19th. And I miss him like crazy, but I still feel like I could call him at any minute and hear his voice. You know, he's still so present to me. And he has never been more present than during one of our last meals together. You know, one in five Americans has a disability. One in five, and most of them are older people. One in five of you out there, sitting there, either has or will have a disability. So I don't understand why we all cling to this mythical, potent, able-bodied self. You know, we're all precariously able. We're all precariously able, and when we learn this, we have a chance of accepting our end-of-life situations, you know? But at best, 
We have moments of intimacy as disabled people that able-bodied people can only imagine. I'm standing in the kitchen, my dad's kitchen, and he, his wheelchair can't fit in there. I'm holding a handle of beef eater and his wine glass, uh, because the wine glass is the last thing he can pick up with just one hand. He can put his hand around it and lift the glass. No feeling necessary. And he's sitting at, his, at the dining room table and I'm holding it up and I say, Hold, tell me when, Dad. And, and he's like, more, 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 stop. And then I pick up my very sturdy tumbler that I'm not gonna be apt to knock over and I stick my finger in it as all self-respecting blind people do when pouring booze. And I pour myself a healthy portion of gin and then I very carefully make my way through the like African masks and cuckoo clocks and all this shit. I mean like really nice, really nice bric-a-brac that they've collected over their years of travel. And I get to the dining room table and then I go back to the kitchen through the skill and charybdis of bric-a-brac. And then and I'm in the kitchen, I'm like, what's for snacks, dad? And he says, okay, in the, turn left, turn left. Okay, in the corner, over there, feel around and there should be a box of crackers. And I'm feeling around and I'm like, here, these? And, and then he, he says, uh, no, those are cookies. And then I pick up another box and he says, okay, those are the crackers. And so in this way, we assemble our snacks prosciutto and pate and cookies and crackers and I make my way back through the burger rack and then he, he, he says okay open up that prosciutto and I've, all I've got is a butter knife so I'm sort of hacking at this Trader Joe's package and I'm like muttering my, my difficulties I'm like oh man this is really hard as if you can't see me perfectly well <laughs> and this is all very discomforting because my dad amongst all of his wonderful traits happened to have been a, an amateur gourmet chef who, who would like whip up eight course meals for 10 or 12 intimates for fun. So this like fumbling with food in front of him is a little, a little uncomfortable, but anyways, I get the prosciutto open and I slap a slimy stack of prosciutto on his plate. I stack and slap a slimy stack on, try saying that eight times on my plate. And then he says, take a, take a breadstick. Okay, give me a breadstick. And he says, you're going to roll the prosciutto around the breadstick like flesh over bone. And I'm like, no problem. This is like totally tactile, way easier than rolling a joint. <laughs> and so I roll over the breadstick. And then, and then, and then, but for my dad, I hear my dad go, shit. And then like a delicate snap and the breadstick falls to the floor. And I'm like, Dad, do, do you want me to roll you up one? And he says, yeah. And so I roll him up one, and I give it to him, and he's like, mm, good. And I mm, roll myself one up, and I like, mm, good. And we do this a bunch of times. And then, uh, and then I'm like, wait, what, what's with the pate, Dad? Because I love my pate. And he said, okay, you're going to take a cracker, put a little pate on there, and then a little dollop of, of Dijon. And I said, okay, and I do it. And I try and hand it to him, but not being able to see I can't really put it into his hand and not being able to feel, he can't take it without snapping it in two. And so after a few frustrating attempts and a lot of pate lost in the effort, <laughs> we, we hit upon the expediency of me holding the cracker out sort of in the direction of his face, <laughs> whereupon he grasps my wrist with his hand and he shoves the cracker <laughs> along with my fingers into his mouth and he's like mmm that's good and, and I make myself one and I'm like mmm that is good and we do this over and over and over again and the gin helps us to forget the rather unsanitary way in which I'm putting the knife into the pate and then into the Dijon and then sort of pushing the toppings over back onto the crackers with my fingers that have nine times out of ten been in my dad's mouth and I know that I will never, ever forget this moment that my dad let me help him, at least for a little while, enjoy one of his last tastes of the good life. Yeah. Thanks a lot, guys.
just after midnight. I'm in a nursing home in Cleveland, Ohio, at the bedside of my 94-year-old father who is dying. You can probably hear him breathing here in the background. He's not dying from coronavirus, by the way. He's got end-stage congestive heart failure in bad timing, I guess. But we're at the part of his care where we're just trying to keep him comfortable. It's the end of day two. We're going into day three. And then that whole time he's been awake, maybe for two minutes. Every time his eyes open, my three sisters and I rush over and we tell him that we love him. We hold his hand and we tell him it's okay to go. Go be with our mom, who he misses so dearly, who died six years ago from cancer. This afternoon he woke up for a bit and he hugged each of us. And he didn't say anything. And then he looked at the TV and the president was on. And he made a sour face and he went, ugh, Trump. And for a couple hours after that, I was scared to death that that was going to be his last words. But it wasn't. A little bit after dinner time, my sisters were preparing to leave. I'm taking the night shift to be with them tonight. And out of nowhere, he opened his eyes, but he found his voice for the first time in a couple of days. And he said, hey, hey, there's a table on the corner and it's only 10 bucks. And we rushed over to his bedside. And I was about to ask about the table when my sister Marty goes, we got the table. I bought it for you. We've got it. And my other sister was like, it's a great table. And then they held his hands and we cried and we said, you can go see mom. It's okay to let go. Bring her the table. It's a nice one. But he was back to sleep just like that. And as my sisters were putting their coats on, I leaned down to my dad's ear and I shouted, hey, I paid for half that table just so you know. And the three of us laughed. Tired laughs, but good laughs. And that's about it. It's 12.15 now. It's just he and I in the room. I'm listening to his ragged breath and wondering when it's going to happen. I love you, Dad. And it's okay to go. Go be with mom. She's waiting for you. And she's gonna love the table. That was Pete Brown. We just heard from, and that is all for our Father's Day compilation. Folks, Father's Day's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>